0: Kings, originally in the Hebrew Bible, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings were two books called Samuel and Kings. And I already mentioned this when we did the Samuel book. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, was the first to divide these books into four books. And basically they called them 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th kingdoms. So that shows that the original Hebrew authors and readers... And the Greek speaking Jews that came later really did see all four of these books, Samuel and Kings, which we know as 1st, 2nd, 1st, 2nd, Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, as one book, one entire story. And if you've already started reading Kings, you see that it pretty much picks up right where Samuel left off, minus a few years of gap in there. So they saw this as one book, one title. It was not until the Latin Vulgate that came along. That they actually divided this up into 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1 and 2nd Kings. And where, where we started seeing these as separate books not really connected to each other. The, one of the reasons that it's 1st and 2 Samuel, and where people are like, because if, remember when we were reading 1, and 2 Samuel, it just like BAM, just cuts off at the end. It's like a major to be continued, like cliffhanger. And it just picks up literally the next day with David. Same thing with Kings. Like, they actually like put it right in the middle of a verse, practically, the break. And the reason is, in the ancient world, a scroll was about 32 feet long. And so you wrote until you got the end of 32 feet. And when you got the end of 32 feet, you got a new scroll. Now, that hardly ever happened. That's why you only have 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and 1st, 2nd Chronicles, because most of the books could fit on 32 feet. Now, if you were poor, you wrote on both sides. But the word of God wasn't going to be written on both sides like that. So, so that's where we got this idea of dividing these books in half. But in its essence, it's pretty much just the Book of Kings, and that's the way we're going to read it and understand it. Even though we'll still call it First and Second Kings because that's just how everybody in our culture understands it, and sometimes people get confused. The Book of Kings begins with the conjunction and. I mentioned this earlier because we've been talking about this with so many books. And it begins with the conjunction and, which in Hebrew is called a vaivikto. Um, I know you'll remember that one. There's a test at the end of this one. <laughs> and it basically shows that it is the continuation of the story. It is the continuation of the story. Who authored the books? We don't really have any idea. It is not, there, scholars, like there are no guesses. We have no idea who authored these books. However, we do know roughly the time period that they were authored, and it was most likely between 586 B.C. and 539 B.C. Now, to put that in perspective, because for most of us, that's just two numbers, basically what happens is the Book of Kings is going to talk about the reign of Solomon, and then how Solomon disobeyed God, and God is going to split the kingdom into two kingdoms, and the north will have the kingdom of Israel, and the south will have the king of Judah. And then we'll talk about the history of the kings in both these kingdoms. Eventually, an empire by the name of the Assyrian Empire will come into power, and they will sack the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and take them into exile and scatter them across the world. We'll talk about this in more detail when we get there. Then they will be replaced by the Babylonian Empire, who will come in 586 and sack the southern tribe of Judah and take them to Babylon. It is somewhere between that, 586, when they go into exile, and then later a man by the name of Cyrus, who will bring the Persian Empire in, he will give an edict that will allow all the Jews and tons of people from other nations to return back to their land in 539. We know whoever is writing this is writing this while they're in exile. So sometimes after Babylon sacks Judah in 586 and before Cyrus gives the edict to return. And the, the idea is that this guy, this author, is sitting in exile and he's compiling the history of Israel in order to explain why they're in exile, why they're in exile. So we know it's sometime during the exile that this is being written. Kings is also an incredibly dark, violent depressing book. And part of that is Israel's history has gotten very dark and violent and depressing at this time. And the guy who's writing it is sitting in exile while he's writing it. So that's the the author. Now the setting. So we're gonna kinda crash course things really quickly. If you want a really good synopsis on Israel's main event histories, then just read Acts chapter eight when Stephen gives his summary of history. He does a really good job of concisely laying out the main details, at least up to David. So, the book of Genesis clearly established that Yahweh was the unique and absolute sovereign king over all creation. And because he created everything, everything is responsible to him in obedience. Then, what happened is humanity fell. They sought autonomy, self law, and to go their own route. And they went into their sinful nature. Then God came and decided to choose Abraham in order to bring redemption to this little family of Abraham, that he would grow into a great nation. And he promised these people, the Israelites, that he would give them a land, that he would make them a great nation, that he would personally bless them, and he would use them to bless the rest of the world. So this begins two very dominant themes. I mean, there's lots of themes, but the two that stand out is the rest of the Bible is going to constantly show the constant, continuous failure, sin, rebellion of humanity against this sovereign, loving, redeeming God. And that despite that, this loving, redeeming, sovereign God is going to pursue them, make covenants, and keep his promises to restore them. And those are the major ideas that are flowing through this thing. So basically the Torah, which is the first five books of the First Testament, tell the story of God choosing Abraham, making them a great nation, bringing these Israelites out of slavery in the Exodus, through the Exodus, into the Promised Land. So the Torah is all about Israel's promise of the land and getting to the Promised Land and being prepared to live in it in a righteous way as God's image. That brings us to Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Joshua is the one that actually brings them into the promised land. And this begins the Deuteronomic history. The Deuteronomic history begins with the book of Deuteronomy, preparing them for the land. This is how you are to live. Joshua brings them into the land, and they conquer it and take hold of it. However, Judges, they fail to continue the conquest. They go after different gods, and they create the cycle of going after other gods, living with the Canaanites, becoming like the Canaanites. God brings up a deliverer, rescues them. They cry out to God, they repent, and then they go back the cycle again. And so this continually repeats this cycle of sinful nature and godly, righteous, loving God. So this is them living in the land. And then we get to Samuel. When we get to Samuel, the people decide that they want to look like all the other nations. They don't want to be unique. They don't want to be different like everybody else, or from everybody else. They don't want to be holy unto Yahweh. They want a king like all the other nations. And so they asked for this. God gives them Saul. He gives them exactly what they want. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. And they got a king just like all the other nations. A corrupt, oppressive, power-hungry, selfish, and ultimately a spoiled little brat who never had a sense of self-identity. Most tyrants have low self esteem and he dominated. He failed, and God then lifted up David. David was not perfect, but he pursued God and repented when he didn't. And God made a covenant with David, promising him that kings would always come from his line and always sit on the throne. The book of Samuel clearly makes the argument that true leadership comes only through submitting to the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh as king. So Genesis establishes Yahweh as a sovereign king in need of obedience, but he's also a loving God who pursues you while he's worthy of a relationship. And then Samuel clearly makes the argument that the only way a leader can truly lead and lead the people towards Yahweh is if they submit to Yahweh. And David gets that at moments, and at other moments he doesn't get it. And that brings us to Kings. Kings is passing the throne from David to Solomon. But as we're going to read, we're going to find out that Solomon is actually not the greatest choice of king. But he becomes king because God made a promise to the family of David. And the whole book of Kings, we're going to see how Israel is going to sin, and they will be punished for their sins, and they will be taken to exile. But God will be more lenient on Judah only because his covenant promises. And so that brings us in the book of Kings. So what is the purpose of the book of Kings? The purpose is basically what I kind of already hinted at. The purpose of the book of Kings is to explain how the chosen people of Yahweh ended up in exile. He is answering the question, how did we end up here? Now, for us, it's like, duh, you sin. But that's easy for us in hindsight. But for them, remember, God made them a promise that he would give them a land, and they would dwell there forever, and he would place his name, character, and be there with them. So he made a promise to them that they would have this land forever. They would be a great nation, and God would use them to be a blessing to the world. So when God comes and gives them this land, and then he dwells with them for a long period of time, for almost 700 years, that's a long time, it's way longer than we've been around as a nation. They got really comfortable with the idea that Yahweh's here and He's always will be here. When they begin to sin and got complacent with their relationship with Him, eventually He begins to send the prophets saying, Exile's coming. Now, most of them called God on a bluff because they're like, wait a minute. You made a promise, and you've always been here, and hey, look at the temple here, and you live in the temple. As long as the temple's here, nothing bad can happen to us. But it did. Eventually, God, in the book of Ezekiel, completely left the temple and abandoned it, so it just became a building, and then the Babylonians and the Assyrians came and sacked them. And the big question, why they're suffering in exile, and when we get to the Assyrians, they are jacked up. They murder the world and massacre them. And once they go through that, one could easily ask the question, why God? You allowed us to be massacred. Over 95% of the the Israelites are going to just be massacred by the Assyrians. Very few are going to survive into exile. And now they're not in the promised land. And it would seem for someone who just watched their family and their nation to be massacred, and a God who abandoned them and let them be kicked out of the land, one would say, you broke your promises, Yahweh. You failed us. You're not worthy of worship. And many Israelites will abandon Yahweh as a result of that, just like many Jews abandoned Yahweh after the Holocaust. They will ask this question. The narrator is gonna go through the historical record of Israel's history, And he's going to detail out something that we conveniently always forget when we ask the question, why God? And that is that Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 also made the promise that if you disobey me and abandon my covenant, I will bring consequences in your life and they will escalate. First, I will just bring famine. And if you continue to rebel against me, then I will allow other enemies and foreign powers to come in and oppress you in your own land. We saw this in the book of Judges. Fortunately for them, they repented before it could escalate too far. If you continue to disobey me and not repent, then these things will be stolen from you, you'll be dominated and oppressed even more, and then eventually you'll be removed completely from the land. You'll be removed completely from the land. That's what Deuteronomy also promised. The land was contingent upon their obedience. Now God never abandoning them was contingent by based on his character. And that's why Deuteronomy also ends with the promise that one day he would give them a new heart so that they could actually obey. He would restore them back to the land of promise, and they would actually be able to dwell there and keep that land forever because they would have a new heart. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, that's what we're going to Kings. Kings, he's going to explain why we end up in exile. He's going to detail all the sins. Nasty, dirty, selfish Sins. He's going to show the escalation, and then we're going to see people like kings who will repent and come to God, but it doesn't last. And we'll see prophets like Elijah and Elisha who will call them to God, but they make their own mistakes too because they're human and they're sinners. And so what he's doing is he's detailing their 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 historical sins, and he's leaving it to you. To figure out why this is wrong according to Deuteronomic law. When we get to the prophets, the prophets will rip Israel a new one. Because the prophets are happening about the same time as the second or the last third of the book of Kings. Once Elijah and Elisha step out, all those prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, and all of them will start kicking in. And they are just ripping Israel a new one. But we'll have to wait for that one. And... The prophets are unique because the best way to understand the prophets, it's like God is slapping you as hard as he can while he's hugging you and telling you I love you at the same time. That's really how the prophets read. And so the prophets will basically lay into them like you would never want to be rebuked by anybody. But they end every single book with the hope that God has not abandoned them and he'll restore them. And so you deserve to be kicked out of the land, but God's character will never abandon you and he'll restore you. You must read kings and the prophets together to understand the full commentary on why Israel is in exile. It is also the prophets that begin to also shift into a third thing, where they'll begin to um, paint a picture of the Messianic kingdom, which doesn't really get painted ever until the prophets come along. There's a few references in Psalms, but other than that, it doesn't really come until the prophets. And so the purpose of this is to explain why they're in exile. And the author's total evaluation as he details the sins, his ultimate conclusion is this, that Israel is in exile because they have failed to obey the will of Yahweh as spoken through the prophets of Yahweh. They failed to obey the will of Yahweh as spoken through the prophets of Yahweh. And that's the ultimate conclusion of why they're in exile. And the warning to us is the same thing. Paul makes this warning in Romans 9, 10, 11, where he says if he could reject his own chosen people, the Israelites, and then move to the Gentiles and make them his people, then don't you think that you're without consequences either because he could do the same thing to you. The promise is that God will never abandon you, and he will always restore you. But the promise is not that you always have the blessings of God in this life. And so the warning is to us as well as we read this, as the chosen people of God through Christ, that if we fail to obey the will of Yahweh as spoken through the prophets of Yahweh, then we will go into exile too. And exile takes on many different forms. For us, it's not a land, but it is blessings. It's always blessings. And so this is the main idea of the book of Kings. There are many themes that are traced throughout the whole book of Kings. But the first major one that you're going to see as we go through the book of Kings is the requirements of the Deuteronomic law. The narrator will never really directly say this is a violation of the Deuteronomic law. He assumes you know it, which most Jews reading this at that time period did. And he will just show you what happens and you're going to be like, Ah, that's a violation of the Deuteronomic law. There are three major regulations that he's going to highlight that they're violating. First is correct worship. Under the Deuteronomic law, he specifically commanded Israel to worship only Yahweh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and many other places. Yet Israel continually worshiped other gods and other idols. Then he would command them in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that they were only to worship in one place and one place only, and that was the tabernacle. But one of the mistakes that David's gonna make is he's gonna put the tabernacle in Gibeon and put the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. He's gonna split it, so to speak. And the people are gonna be divided between two locations. And then they're gonna erect these high places, which is basically where they would just go to the top of a hill and build an altar and worship God there. And they would worship God wherever they wanted. And that's a violation of God's command. And over and over and over again, God is gonna say of the kings of Judah, and they did not tear down the high places. And even the righteous godly kings will be condemned for they did not tear down the high places. They were not idolaters, but they did not get rid of the high places. Because here's the problem with high places. High places were first populated by the Canaanite gods. So there might be leftover imagery of the pagan gods that would tempt you into that. Now for us as a modern day Westerner, we think, well, why would seeing an image of Baal tempt you to go after that? Well, for us, it's Hollywood. Why wouldn't images of constantly of violence and sex and rebellion tempt you to act that way? Well, just look around in America and even the church. That's not our particular weakness, that kind of an image, but it was theirs. God didn't want them to be exposed to those old images and be tempted back into it. The other thing was, you can't regulate it. Part of the tabernacle was it was controlled by the Levites, and the Levites could regulate the worship and make sure that it was God-honoring. Now the problem is that the Levites got corrupted. But when you're in like some local village on top of a hill, anybody could be regulating the worship and they may not be as stern to make sure that things are being done right. This can lead you down to dark places. So this is the main thing that he's gonna critique them on is their idolatry and the fact that they continue to worship in multiple different locations other than the tabernacle. The second major violation of the law that he will deal with them in is concerning social justice. Their inability to actually take care of the poor, to defend the weak, to not cheat other people. As conservatives, largely, we have focused on obedience and doing the right thing. Liberals, we have focused on, typically, social justice. And very rarely do those two mix together in our culture. Now, that's beginning to change as the church is growing and developing. But when we come to God, he is interested in social justice as well as absolute truth. it's not just enough to believe the right thing and say that these things in our culture are sin and be true to God only. It's also required by God to go out and intentionally love people, defend the weak, and that kind of stuff. And that's what the prophets are going to zero in. Those are the two sins they're really going to focus on is that. The third sin they're going to focus on is religious hypocrisy. So he is really going to go after them concerning the way that they deal with their neighbors. And there's going to be a lot of stories in Kings, also about their failure to love their neighbors, and the fact that they are cheating the poor and the weak, and all that kind of stuff. The third major major violation of the law is specifically the kings. Samuel taught that the kings were supposed to be vice-regents of Yahweh. That they only were allowed to do what Yahweh commanded them to do. They were not allowed to seize power. They were not allowed to seize wealth and position and fame. But that they were only to do what God wanted them to do. And they were not to see themselves any higher than any of their fellow Israelites. They were to be kings of the people. The problem is they will become corrupt, power hungry, wealthy. And this is clearly laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 through 20. And you're gonna, we're gonna, you're gonna hear me say this a lot. You've probably already heard me say it in Samuel, but we're really gonna say a lot. This is the Deuteronomic regulations for the king, and the Deuteronomic regulations for the king is found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, and there he lays out four, five criteria. The first criteria is that the kings must be an Israelite chosen by Yahweh. They must be an Israelite chosen by Yahweh. They must be a person of the covenant. The second one is the king must not accumulate horses. They're not allowed to accumulate horses or go back to Egypt. It's not just horses. Horses were symbolic of military technological advancements. And so it was not just horses. It was horses and chariots and anything else that advanced the human body beyond itself. And the idea is that um, today, if God were giving this command, He would say, Don't collect aircraft carriers and Apache helicopters and fighter jets and tanks and all that kind of stuff. Because God didn't want them to trust in their military technology, He wanted to trust in them. And when they stood up against the most advanced military armies that the world has ever seen, and only with their swords and very few numbers, they would defeat them like they were nothing, it became very obvious that it was Yahweh who gave them victory and not them. So he didn't want them to amass that, and he definitely did not want them to go back to Egypt for any of these reasons. Third, the king was not to collect wives. He was not allowed to have multiple wives. In the ancient world, this is how they formed treaties. The only way you can afford to be married to multiple women and have all those kids is if you had a lot of money and power. And usually the only way you got money and power is if you were already seeking it in some kind of way. And so if I wanted to make a treaty with somebody like over there in Russia, I would marry his daughter and have kids and he would marry my daughter and have kids. Because unlike signing your name to a piece of paper, which you can easily violate, I am less likely to attack him if my own family and children are in his house. And that's how they form treaties. Which means, why is this wrong? For two reasons. One, the minor one, it's, well it's major but minor comparatively. For one reason is that they're trusting in other pagan nations and their military to secure their borders and defend them than they are Yahweh. And as we're gonna find out, when they do trust in these other nations, it doesn't matter whether your family is in their house, they still violate their treaties. Because money and powerful power can become more powerful than your own family. And we've seen that in America. Many people have sacrificed their family for power and money and job promotions. But the other reason, and this is the major, major reason, is if you're bringing a bunch of women from other nations into your household, they're pagans, worshiping other gods. And you're not bringing them in because they converted to Yahweh and you're marrying them, you're bringing them in because of power and money, and they haven't converted. So they're gonna bring their idols in, and God says, lest they twist your heart or lead it astray after other gods. And not only that, all these children that you're going to have, there's, it's hard, like I've already mentioned this before, it's hard enough to be a father to three kids, let alone four or five. And some of you have had more than three, know that's a challenge. But when you have like 70, 100 children, how in the world are you going to be a good father to all those kids? There's not enough hours in the day. There's barely enough right now for three. And then who's going to raise those kids most of the time? All the mothers. And they are pagans. So when you die, who becomes king? A pagan child with pagan mothers. And no longer is Israel being led by a godly man. And so God didn't want you to collect wives. Then they were not allowed to collect silver and gold to go after a fortune. Now, it doesn't mean that they weren't allowed to have it because God often gifted wealth and power to people. But they weren't allowed to pursue it and seek it. And that one's obvious. We've seen money corrupt people. And fifth, the king was to make his own copy of the Torah. He was to take the Torah, and he was to hand-copy it in his own handwriting, which would take a little while. And then he was to read it daily so that he would not stray to the left or the right of God's Word. And these are the criteria. Once again, when we go through the king's We're going to judge these kings by this criteria. We're going to judge these kings by this criteria. The point of these regulations was to limit the power of the king to avoid tyranny and them putting themselves in Yahweh's place. The second reason that these regulations were in place was that the king was to model what true righteousness and justice look like. And a king that is seeking power can't model true righteousness and true justice. And in this case, the king is to be the most ultimate image of Yahweh. He is to be the most ultimate image of Yahweh, leading all the other images of Yahweh in the nation. And these regulations were to keep him from becoming his own image, making himself into an idol. And that's what we're going to see with Nebuchadnezzar. When we get to the book of Daniel, it's all about Nebuchadnezzar trying to make himself into his own image rather than reflect God's image and what that leads to. So that's the first, that's a major theme. The second major theme is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is this, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David and he promises him that he will always have descendants forever and these descendants will always sit on the throne. Yet David's sons are going to end up being just as much scumbags as the other people from other families. And yet God is not going to punish them as harshly. Now he will punish them and it will be harsh. You're going to read this and you're like, that's not harsh. It is harsh, but it's not going to be as harsh as the other kings from other families because God made a promise to them. So they will be punished, but they will not be dethroned because that's the promise that God made them. In fact, the book of Kings opens up with the question, who's going to be king? And when we begin the book of Kings, it's going to be a very big question mark. Who's going to be king? And we don't know. The narrator doesn't seem to know who's king. Nathan doesn't seem to know. David doesn't seem to know. Nobody seems to know. And a couple of David's sons are going to be duking it out, so to speak. One more in the shadows and the other one more aggressively. And the question is, yeah, God made a promise, but who really is it? And then you find that Solomon ends up becoming king, and he seems to be the narrator, Nathan, and God's pick, but he really quickly proves you wrong. And then the next king proves you wrong. And the next king, you begin to realize, wow, the only reason these guys are kings is because God is faithful to his promises. Because they are definitely not worthy of this kingship. So that's the Davidic covenant. The next theme that we're going to see here is the prophetic word of Yahweh. The prophetic word of Yahweh. Now, this is key. Now, already we've seen Yahweh's prophecies and fulfillments. Every single book, God speaks and it comes true. But this one's going to be big time prominent. And what it's really going to emphasize over and over and over again, you're going to see God speak something and it'll get fulfilled. And the narrator is going to push this into your face more than any other narrator of any book before this has really done this he's really trying to make it clear to you that God keeps his promises. And when he says something, it happens because nothing stops the word of God. And even when people try to derail it or whatever, it always has a way of boomeranging back into a fulfillment. And in some cases, almost literally, like with Ahab. So he's gonna detail this out. But the other part of this is the word of God is mostly and pretty much uniquely spoke through the prophets. It's uniquely spoke through the prophets. And it's this book that the prophets are going to become more dominant. And of course, if you read it with the prophetic books in parallel, realizing they're all happening, the prophets become a major entity. Now, there were prophets that exist in Israel before kings. Um, Abraham was a prophet. And we saw different prophets. But it wasn't until the monarchy was established with Saul that the prophetic office became a more established thing. It wasn't just a prophet here and there. Now we actually have an office of prophet. And the prophet's job was this. The prophet was responsible for anointing the king, guiding the king, rebuking the king, and even judging the king when he stepped out of order. He was the guy who made sure the king stayed in check. And the best way to think of this hierarchy is, the ultimate hierarchy is, Yahweh, and because this is a theocracy, theo, god, archi, rule. And Yahweh is the ultimate ruler. And the king and the prophet are to represent Yahweh. There their are two images side by side. The highest authority in the human material realm is the prophet. The prophet is the highest authority. The king answers to the prophet. The prophet picks the king. The prophet de-anoints the king, as in the case of Saul, He's the one that guides them. He's the one that rebukes them. He's the one that judges them. And the prophet and the king were to work side by side. So the prophet becomes the voice of God. And the king becomes the political executioner of the voice of God. So the prophet is the one who hears the voice. And the reason the prophet is the only one who knows the voice of God is because in the First Testament, no one had the Holy Spirit living inside of them. So nobody knew what God's will was for their life. They knew it generally speaking through the Torah and the law, but not specifically like go and attack this nation right now or go over here and fill up these jars full of oil kind of a sense. Nobody knew that specific will of Yahweh. But the prophet was the only one to know this because he was the one in the divine council of Yahweh. Most of you were here for that. If not, just go to my website and listen to it. So divine counsel of Yahweh is the prophets were brought up through visions into the presence of God and God would speak to them directly and send them back to earth out of the vision, so to speak. And they would speak the will of God to the people. So they would make the will known. So the king was utterly dependent upon the prophet to know what God wanted. The the king was then to make sure that it happened. He was the one who went politically and militarily and economically to the people and he ran and administered the kingdom to make sure the will of God actually happened. And there was job of the people to obey the will of God as spoken through the prophet, executed through the king, and then the priest regulated your righteousness by teaching you what God was like and atoning for your sins when you disobey. And that's how all these entities kind of work together. The prophet spoke the will of God, the king executed the will of God, the priest taught you who God was, and he atoned for your sins when you didn't obey the will of God, and the people were to be the image of God, adhering to these three parties. We will see prophets bring kings into power, but what we'll see a lot of is prophets condemning kings. And sometimes they will get very sarcastic with the kings, and very flippant with them. And in that sense, too, they were also the guardians of the law. Because when the kings got out of step and out of hand for too long, and they were completely pushing the prophet away and totally ignoring them, which will happen, then the prophet would bypass the king and go right to the people. And usually by the time the king had gotten that bad, the people were really bad, too. So then that enters in the prophetic books, where they're speaking directly to the people and condemning them because the king is no longer passing it along, so he has to bypass the king. At that point, he's then going to judge them for violation of the covenant law. So the prophet had three jobs. Speak the will of Yahweh, to guide and regulate the king, and then to be the regulation of the law, or the guardian of the law, to make sure the law was executed and known the way it was supposed to. But something's going to happen in Kings that we haven't seen in any other book yet. We've seen it here and there, but the prophets are going to fail, too. They're going to start going downhill. And it's going to be hard because we're so used to, as modern-day Western Christians, like the prophets are always right. They speak the will of God, right? No, 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 no. They can become corrupt, too. And they can screw it up big time. And Israel is going to suffer big time when Elijah and Elisha screw up a message from God. And it's going to ripple through the nation drastically. And so what the Bible is going to show is that the priests have already failed in the book of Judges. The kings are going to fail in the book of Kings and the prophets are going to fail drastically. When the prophets do disobey God, God kills them. When you are the only voice of God in the entire nation and you say, Thus saith Yahweh, do this. There is no way to fact check you. The only way to fact check you is with another prophet. But if there's no other prophet conveniently standing around, because remember, it's not like you can just like Skype them in or text them. You pretty much have to do what the prophet says. And if you disobey the prophet, you're disobeying God, and that's judgment. But if you obey the prophet and he's wrong, then you just disobey God. So you pretty much just obey the prophet because the prophet is the voice of God and you trust that God will deal with them, and God will. So when a man has that much power, that is absolute power to just say, God says, and everybody has to obey it. One of the ways that God makes it very clear that if somebody says, God says, and they're wrong, is he immediately kills them. Because he doesn't want anybody think about how how much power that is that you have when you say, God says, and Everybody has to obey, and if you abuse that for selfish reasons, you can doom entire nations, families, tribes. And so God will kill you, because He wants to make it clear that that's not right. And you're like, well, that's kind of harsh, and yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. Moses, the minute Moses publicly blatantly disobeyed the command of God, what did God say to him? You're dead. Now, he delayed Moses' death, but everybody knew it was coming. And Moses did not hide it. Even when he gave the sermons in Deuteronomy, he's like, I'm going to die. Although Moses also said, because I disobeyed God and because of you people, you made me angry. <laughs> he kills him. And we're going to see that. If you've already been reading ahead, there's a man of God who's going to pronounce a judgment in Jeroboam. And then God says, don't go back the way you came and don't eat with anybody. And he eats with somebody. And the first thing that happens is God kills him. And God, in the minute king disobeys, the prophet comes in and says, you're going to die. And sometimes the death is delayed, but everybody knows that this guy is going to die soon because they don't want you to think that this guy is the voice of God. And what you're going to find as we read through this, the narrator of Kings is not kind to anyone. He is harsh, critical, and unforgiving in his evaluation of everybody. And in some moments, and he will be true, he will will lift up the prophets and the kings when they are righteous, and he'll commend them for their righteousness, and he'll point out that they were godly when they did this, but he will not hold back when they fail. He will hold them to the iron, and he will drill them into the ground in his evaluation. Because what he wants you to see is ultimately all human leaders fail. And if he doesn't grind all these leaders in the ground like they deserve, then you may not really appreciate your need for Jesus when he comes along. And you will not see how uniquely he stands out compared to all these. The problem with putting David on the pedestal and Elijah on the pedestal is he doesn't look a whole lot different in narrative lore to Jesus. Like, oh yeah, Jesus did miracles, Elijah did miracles, Elijah obeyed God perfectly, right? Well, I'm sure he didn't because we know he's a human. But when you really get into the great details of kings, you realize that they screw up big time. And the narrators really want you to see that there's a messianic king that we're looking for, and it's not these guys. And the, 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 the more that you de pedestal them, the more that Jesus really stands out of how unique he really is and not just some other righteous prophet. Hey, we've had a whole bunch of those already, right? Well, yeah, I know Jesus is unique in that whole death and resurrection, but his morality, right, wasn't that about the same? And I know we don't think that, but I think it's subconscious. If you think about the way that we talk about the prophets, and then later we come to Jesus on a completely different Sunday, it almost sounds like they're the same, unintentionally, subconsciously. And so he will not be kind to them, and therefore neither will I. (laughs) because I'm just going to tell you how he evaluates them. Because, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Kings is the narrative outliving of Romans 1 and 2 and 3. And If you read Romans, it says, all have sinned. They have forsaken their creator. They went after this and this and this. So God gave them over and they died and suffered. And you Gentiles, your evil ones, all oh, you righteous Jews, I'm not done with you either. You're, and he's just going after. And then he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Kings is. And this is what you need to understand. When you read the Second Testament and you read all those epistles, those are the theological abstract principles that the narratives in the First Testament have already poured out for you. Think of the kings as the Sunday school story that you tell and then the epistles are now, boys and girls, the moral of the story is don't be an idiot. Okay, So it's kind of that idea. So if you don't know the story, then the epistles' moral of the story is not as impactful. It's not as impactful. Kings will be dirty, but it will help you appreciate what Paul and them are all saying all the more. The last one is the judgment and grace of Yahweh. The last major theme. And in this one, we're going to see the judgment of God. I don't even really have to unpack this one because this one kind of just stands out on its own. God will judge them according to what he said he would do in Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28. But, despite this, this is what's so amazing. We're going to see grace. I mean, when you read this, you're going to think, like, there is no way I would put up with that. If that was my kid... (laughs) Or if that was my leader, I'd be calling for impeachment. And we'll have kings like Jeroboam who will be erecting idols and creating a false religion in Israel to oppose Yahweh intentionally. And God will judge him and physically cripple his arm and that kind of stuff. And you're thinking this guy should be smashed because Moses was killed for far less than what this guy has done. And he knows better because he's a king. And then he doesn't repent, he just says, oh, please just heal me, and God heals him. You are like, why in the world would God do that? He didn't repent, he deserves a harsher punishment than Moses, and then there's other times where kings are just blatantly saying, forget you, God, you abandon me, I want nothing to do with you, and God says, I'll give you victory against the Moabites, so that you'll know what kind of a God that I am. And you're like, what? Who does that? Well, that mean, evil God of the First Testament, right, according to the atheists, That's what's so amazing is the judgments will be harsh, but in the midst of it, the grace will be unfathomably unrealistic at the same time. And he'll put up with a lot, even as he's judging them. And by the time we get to the exile, you'll realize, my goodness, they deserve this, because this should have happened a long time ago. And with this many prophets... I would have ne- I mean, we don't give our kids that many warnings. How many of you sit there for 700 years saying this thing over and, over and over and over and over and over again, over again? You say it two or three times and you're like, I said it, you didn't listen, time out. And we put them in exile immediately. That's what time out is, is exile. It's, it's very biblical. As long as you also bring them back out and love them, forgive them, restore them, okay? Because you have to be biblical both in exile and restoration. This is the amazing thing. But here's the other thing. The last point that we're going to make in this introduction. All throughout the book of the Kings, there's allusions to the Exodus. And the narrator is going to repeat these Exodus story over and over again. Now, he's going to repeat it in different ways. You're going to see figures that are going to be just like Moses. When Jeroboam flees to Egypt and he comes out of Egypt and he comes to Rehoboam and says, Let my people go, so to speak. And he begins to lead a new... He's going to be like a new Moses. But then he's going to turn into a new Aaron when he builds the golden calves all over again. And then you're going to see a new Exodus when Elijah exits the land. Except he won't take any Israelites with him, which means that's how bad they are. And then Israel is going to be portrayed as a new Egypt. And the kings are going to be portrayed, portrayed as a new Pharaoh. And so you're going to see this theme over and over again where the kings are the new Pharaoh and the Israel is the new Egypt. And in that way, God is going to show you that he doesn't play favorites. If he judged Egypt and the pharaohs with plagues because they were like this, then if Israel becomes the new Egypt and the new pharaohs and their idolatry and their sins, then he will do the same thing that he did to them. And he even told them that in Exodus. He says, hold true to this law, or I will bring the same judgments I brought on Egypt I will bring on you. Because God doesn't play favorites. He might have chosen them. But he chose them to be righteous, to bless the world, not to be excused from punishment when they sin. And he'll make that clear. But at the same time, he'll have all these Exodus moments an Exodus out of the new Egypt, an Exodus away from the new Pharaoh. Because at the same time, he's also showing them that no matter how bad the judgment is, and no matter how much you become like Egypt, and no matter how much I judge you, you, I promise restoration. And there's always another Exodus. So, and this Exodus theme is going to go throughout the entire Bible because even Jesus, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and, um, and Elijah, it says they were talking about his Exodus. And the exile and Exodus are two really dominant themes throughout the Bible. And so I will point these out. And they will be pretty strong in Solomon's life. They will really come out in Elijah and Elisha and then they'll kind of die in towards the end because it's just really bad towards the end. But this is basically the the different themes. The structure of kings is the first part is basically Solomon's reign, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then in chapter 11, going into 12, Solomon is judged by God, and the kingdom splits. And the kingdom splits into two factions. Ten tribes are in the north called Israel, And the southern tribe is Judah. From this point on, every single time you read the word Israel, it does not refer to the entire 12 tribes as a nation. It refers to only the kingdom in the north of 10 tribes. And Judah always refers to the southern tribe. I will repeat that multiple times as we go on. Then we basically see all these kings in the north and kings in the south, and the narrator will go back and forth between them strategically. There's a reason why he shifts back and forth to make different points. And he details in chronicles the moral corruption and downfall of Israel until eventually they enter into exile. And during this time, these two kingdoms will be at war with each other, they'll be at peace with each other, they'll be at war with each other, and then they'll go into exile. That's the setting. So, that's our introduction. There's a two-page document that I've created. that gives you a parallel of the kings and the prophets and it shows you where the kings and the prophets match up with each other parallel. Right now we're gonna go through the kings, and this will let you know where is Amos and Jonah and all this kind of stuff. And then when we go through the prophets, next, um, after Christmas, then you can say, hey, where are the kings and all the prophets? And so this chart will show you these prophets and how they match up, and it'll even give you the major rulers on the farthest right, that are attacking Israel and Judah at these different time periods. Not all the rulers of the world around them, just the ones that show up in the Bible and attacking them. This will give you a parallel of the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, the prophets, and the foreign kings attacking them, that I would recommend you kind of have this by your side as we're going, because if you've done any reading, the names get, especially when it's like, Jehoron was ruling over Israel, but Jehoron was literally going, they start using the same names, like everybody's Bill and Jim and that kind of stuff in America today.